discouragement, which we saw in chapter 4, the face of fear, how, how did he get this done? Was it due, and you read a lot about Nehemiah's leadership abilities, was it due to his leadership abilities? Is that why the wall was successful and completed successfully? Was it due to his organizational skills? Was it due to his powers of delegation? You know, and I'm sure all those things made, it, made a difference, without a doubt. I'm sure that they all played a role. But the ultimate secret to his success is no secret at all. It says in verse 15, it says that the work of our God, uh, that, that this work was completed with the help of our God. It was because the Lord stood behind the work. It was because the Lord enabled Nehemiah and the people to do the work that the work actually was finished. Even the gift of leadership, think about this, that Nehemiah had from God uh, was attributed to God. It wasn't even him that, that did this. God gave him this ability. Everything he had, God gave him. This is all the help of God. Psalm 127 puts it this way, and this is a great verse, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchmen keep awake in vain. That's a great truth. That is a great truth for all of us. The labor on the wall would have mounted to nothing at all had God not been in it. Had he not been in it, it would have mounted to nothing. We must understand, if we get to the place that we think that this work that we're involved in right now, the work of God we're involved in right now, is dependent upon our abilities, dependent upon our talents, dependent upon uh, our, our management skills, as people today think, then that work is going to come to naught. It's going to come to nothing at all. The work of God will be accomplished only with what? The help of God, right? Only with the help of God. And not apart from that, Jesus said in John 15, 1, without me you can do a little bit, something, a little something. No, you can do absolutely nothing. That's what it says. And that's why I think we need to be reminded of that periodically because we can get to the place where we think, well, maybe I've got this down. Maybe I figured this out. Maybe I can get this done. We can't get it done without the help of God. People can build a megachurch a block long. Uh, they can build, they can have all kinds of programs in their church. They can have all kinds of people in their church. But if that church is built on entertainment, like so many churches are today, if it's built on uh, the charismatic personalities of the people in charge, if it's built on sermons that appeal to the flesh, if it's built on principles of business growth, that is no work of God at all. And that appears formidable to people. People look at that and they say, look at this church. Look at all these people. And they are impressed with that. But to God, it's nothing more than wood, hay, and stubble. Nothing at all. No truly lasting spiritual work will be done without the help of God. If we think that this church, if we ever get to the place that this church, we think, you know, it's a machine after a while. starts It runs, it kind of runs on its own automatically. We're in the wrong place. Unless the Lord builds the house, the people who labor, labor in vain. Now, these verses reflect what is taught in both Testaments, Old and New Testament, uh, when God, for example, starts his work, he completes it. When God starts his work, he completes it. Now, if we, if we, have, if we do a work with God, <clears throat> if we do a work that we, is really not God's work, but it's our work, <clears throat> concocted out of our own brain, which a lot of people do, and we claim that God's anointed and all that, that's going nowhere at all. <clears throat> that's a different matter. When you weigh those kind of works against Scripture, that's no work of God at all. But if a work is actually initiated by the Lord like his church, and it's endorsed by the scripture, that work will be brought to a successful completion. You can mark it down. It will be according to his timetable, according to his schedule, according to his plan. Take the work of Christ on the cross. Satan did everything in his power to 
throughout the earthly life of Christ to stop him. To stop him. He did everything he could. He tried to stop him. And the suffering for sin that he went through on the cross was unimaginable. We can't even begin to imagine what that was like. And yet, just before his, he took his last breath, what did he say? He said, it is finished. The work, of, the work of salvation is done. The work of Christ on the cross is done. Our salvation is, is dependent upon that completed work. God completed his work with Christ. Take eternal security. When the Lord saves people, he saves them for eternity. Not for a season, not for a while, not based on their, uh, their works, not based on what they can do. The Bible knows nothing of a person who's saved temporarily. And then it becomes, it hangs in the balance constantly. Jesus said of his own disciples in John 17, verses 11 and 12, as he was on the verge of crucifixion, on the verge of his resurrection and ascension, he said this, while I was with these disciples, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so the scripture will be fulfilled. He lost no, one, no disciple. Of course, Judas was never truly a believer to begin with. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. God doesn't get rid of his people that he, he saves. We're not str left stranded along the way somewhere. He brings us all the way to glory. The Lord always completes the work he starts, just like he did in Nehemiah chapter 6. That was his work. He completed it. And God does his work in such a way as to receive the glory. Notice how quickly this wall was finished. Look at verse 15 again. It says, so the wall was completed on the 25th of the month of Elul in 52 days. It took 52 days. That's not very long. 52 days to rebuild this wall, which is amazing, really. People have disputed that. Oh, it can't be 52 days. And I think Josephus said it was two years or something. What does it say in the text? It says 52 days. That's what it says to complete the wall. Pretty amazing considering the fact that the wall had been neglected for year, uh, probably a century and a half. And yet in 52 days they completed. How was it done so quickly? God enabled them to, to do it. He allowed them to get it done. He gets the glory. Look at how defeated his enemies felt in verse 16. It says, when all our enemies heard of it and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence. They lost their confidence. And, and literally that is this. They fell or they sank greatly in their own eyes. They sank in their own esteem. In other words, their self-esteem was crushed. When they looked at the wall that had been completed, their self-esteem was crushed, and, and they, they, their pride and their arrogance comes to a screeching halt. They never thought this would happen. They never thought this wall would actually go up. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. When they're ridiculing uh, the wall going up, chapter 4, verse 2, it says that the enemies are mocking the Jews, and it says Sanballat, one of the enemies, spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? What are these guys trying to do? They really think you're going to build this wall? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they, can they really complete this thing quickly? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? And verse 3, Tobiah, Tobiah the Ammonite was near him, and he said, yeah, even if what they were building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. In other words, just, they, they felt like there's no way this wall is going to be completed. This is, this is not going to happen. And yet, you go to chapter 6, the wall is completed, and the enemies are astounded, and they say, wow, what happened here? I can't even believe this happened. And they have one explanation they come up with. God must have helped these Jews. 
That's all they could come. They recognized that this was the work of God. They knew it. They couldn't deny it. They could not deny it. No one could deny it. It's similar. You see that in New Testament, too. You see it in Acts chapter 3, where Peter and John heal a lame man. And then in chapter 4, the, the people who witnessed that healing, they said, you know, this is causing quite a stir. This guy gets healed. It's causing a lot of problems for the Jewish leaders and that this happened. And chapter 4 the people who witnessed the healing, they said, what shall we do with these men, these apostles, for the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all. It's pretty obvious that something happened here, and it's not normal. It's not normal for people to do these things. It's apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. Everybody can see, and we cannot deny it, they said. We can't deny this work of God. Even the enemies of the gospel cannot explain this away. God gets all the glory. Can you imagine... If great things happen in this church and people said, wow, what's going on there? This has to be something that's out of the ordinary. This has to be supernatural. But God gets all the glory for these things. One, one caution, though. To say that God gets all the glory does not mean that we do nothing. That we sit around and wait for God to get, do everything. He's not saying that. Believers do their part. The people worked hard on the wall. Nehemiah led them in their work on the wall. And so... They completed it. But we know where our help comes from. We know, ultimately, I hope we know as believers where our help comes from. Our help comes from the Lord, right? Psalm 121, verse 2, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So looking back on the completed wall, the people realize, the, the enemies of God realize that the real catalyst behind the wall being built is God. He did it. He had to have done it. It couldn't have been done anyway. This is why God get all, gets all the glory for this. Now, if we try to rob him of his glory, it's a different thing. We should do, like Matthew 5, we should do, we should do things in such a way that, that God gets the glory, Matthew chapter 5 says. We can look back on our lives today, and we should, we should look back on our lives and say, where would I be without the Lord? Where would I be today? Because God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. His help is not relegated only to the past. We, we might be tempted to think, well, that's in the Old Testament, but it happens today, too. It also applies to the present and the future, Psalm 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help. A very present help in time of trouble. He stands ready to help his people now. He stands ready to help you now in your circumstances. I love the hymn, Oh God, our help in ages past. That's great. But our hope for years to come is even greater. God is the one who helps. The secret to Nehemiah's success is God being behind everything he did and helping him through it all. It wasn't Nehemiah. It was God. Secondly, notice the thorn in Nehemiah's side. The thorn in his side, verses 17 and 19. Also, Nehemiah says, in those days, many letters went from the nobles of Judah. These are the leadership of Judah to Tobiah, the enemy. And Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, to Tobiah, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah. The son of Ara and the son and his son Jehohanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. Moreover, they were speaking about his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. Then Nehemiah sent, then rather not Nehemiah, but Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. Now, as I have said a few times already in chapters four to six, or a, a unit that speak about the opposition from God's enemies and therefore Nehemiah's enemies. From the time Nehemiah had set foot in Jerusalem, <clears throat> the enemies were there, ready to pounce on him, ready to taunt him. They schemed against him. They plotted against him. 
They started by ridiculing him. We just saw some of that in chapter 4. They belittled the Jews. They conspired against the Jews. It goes on to say in chapter 4, they decided they, they planned on fighting against Jerusalem, attacking the city to cause a disturbance in it, chapter 4 says. They, uh, they tried inviting Nehemiah to a summit to try to, uh, for peace talks, but that was just a setup to try to harm Nehemiah. They fabricated a rumor about Nehemiah. They said, they told everybody, they, they told Nehemiah, hey, we've told everybody that you're trying to be the king. You want to be the king. You want to take over as king and establish yourself that way. That wasn't true, but they tried it. They tried that strategy. They hired a false prophet, chapter 6, against Nehemiah who tried to undermine him, get him to sin. That didn't succeed. The underlying theme of all their plots, as you read in chapter 6, is trying to frighten Nehemiah, trying to frighten him, always trying to frighten him. None of that succeeded, but that did not discourage them from continuing on with their efforts. They never got discouraged. The enemy, they kept going after him. Just like Paul in Acts 9, whose every breath was, I've got to get the Christians, I've got to kill the Christians. I've got to arrest the Christians. They did the same thing. Every breath they took, let's go after God's people. But so far, all these efforts had failed. Now, you would think with their newfound understanding that, hey, God's done this great work. He's completed this wall. We thought, we thought we'd never see this go up. Even with that, they still kept up their, their opposition. They kept right on with their persecution of Nehemiah. The wall is finished. They are not. They're not finished with their opposition. Verse 17, also in those days, <clears throat> many letters went from the nobles to Judah, from Judah to Dubai. In those days, during this long period of time, or during, during a period of time, rather, they are doing this not just one time, but this is going on uh, again and again. This final strategy is going on for a good while. You would think that uh, they would give up, but they're, they're, they're humiliated from what has happened, but they don't give up. They keep right on. What are they doing? Well, First of all, verses 17 and 19, you remember who Tobiah is. He's the enemy. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. When it was reported to Sanballat, Tobiah, to, to Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall. He's an enemy of God's people. Furthermore, he's an Ammonite. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 10, he is an Ammonite. He's called Tobiah the Ammonite. Now that puts the whole situation in new light. They're the enemies of God's people. Deuteronomy 23.3 says, No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord. Why? Because they had opposed Israel early on in the Old Testament. They had opposed them. Ammonites were the enemies of the Jews. Tobiah is an Ammonite. And so we have a problem here. Now that in and of itself is not so earth-shattering, but... Now we find out in verses 17 and 19 that Tobiah the Ammonite has family ties with people in Judah. He's related by marriage to Jews, it says. Not only to any Jews, to people who are people of influence. He's doubly related by marriage, as a matter of fact. He himself, in verse 18, is married to the daughter of Shechaniah. And his son is married to the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. You find him in Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 4. They, these, are, these are probably guys who are well-known families in Judah. Tobiah and his son are intermarried with the Jews, these Ammonites. So Tobiah has infiltrated the ranks of Jewish high society by intermarriage. Now, remember Ezra back in chapter Ezra, Ezra 9 and 10? He said, no intermarriage. We're not doing that. He was pulling his hair out over the situation. And yet, 
here this guy ends up infiltrating the ranks of Jewish people in high society. As a result, he's got influence with the nobles of Judah. Verse 18 says, many in Judah were bound by oath to him. Many in Judah, what a statement, were bound by oath to Tobiah the Ammonite. That's what it says. Not just a few, but many. Being bound by oath probably indicates an economic uh, binding and also maybe a, a political commitment to Tobiah. Well, there's an exchange of letters that goes back and forth between Tobiah, the enemy of the Jews and the nobles of Judah. They write back and forth. Tobiah, no doubt, trying to influence, trying to undermine Nehemiah's authority with the Jewish nobles of that day through the postal service. Nehemiah says in verse 19, the Jewish, the Jewish nobles were reporting his words to Tobiah. So T Tobiah is trying to find out what Nehemiah is up to, and the nobles are keeping him updated. So it's kind of a spy service going on here. Tobiah using the Jewish nobles to find out about Nehemiah. Tobiah seeking to make the people more loyal to him than to Nehemiah, God's rightful leader. No, Nehemiah is the governor. He's the head guy. And yet you got this guy Tobiah trying to manipulate the situation. Furthermore, verse 19, the nobles that were committed to Tobiah says this, they were speaking about his good deeds in my presence. And so the nobles of Judah... When they got around Nehemiah, the governor, they would talk about Tobiah saying, hey, this is a good guy here. Think about this. Can you hear him now? Hey, Nehemiah, lighten up. Tobiah's a good guy. He's one of us. He does good things for the people. Cut him some slack. You know, the more you get to know him, the more you love him. And they're talking like this, and wow, this is all backwards. One, riot, one writer called what Tobiah did the most sinister aspect of this story. See, Tobiah's a slick character. He's like Satan. He's very likable. He knows how to manipulate the situation, but he's very devious at the same time. And yet he's managed to infiltrate the ranks of God's people in, the, in high places. This is a strategy of Satan. This is what he's always done in the past. He still does it today. He does it in churches today. Satan infiltrates churches today. Mike's talking about Matthew 13. Satan plants his tares among the wheat. He does it in churches all the time, and those people will cause... You wonder why you have a business meeting in some churches. And I've seen some crazy business meetings. We don't have that here, fortunately. Let's never have a business meeting that's like that, okay? I remember one time I went up to Illinois uh, during a week. We were on vacation or something, and there was a business meeting going on in the home church here in Tampa. <laughs> and I heard about it. They were coming to near blows over the carpet or whatever. Don't ever do that here. But those people, you have tears among the wheat, infiltrate. Um, they will cause disruption. You'll wonder, what's going on in their church? Well, you got tares among the wheat, for one thing. They'll, cause, they'll gossip. They'll plant the seeds of disunity. And many churches have split through the years because of this device, this strategy of Satan. Now, if the strategy of Satan, getting in on the inside, worked in the Old Testament, surely it's going to work in the New Testament, and it does. And so Satan has his false prophets. He has his false teachers. They infiltrate churches in the New Testament. And so people like Jude write about the false teachers, like in Jude 4, and they say these guys have crept in unnoticed. They snuck in the back door. Nobody, nobody caught it. They're very sneaky. They're like the Mormon. You ever had a Mormon come to your door, and they look nice, and they have a tie on, and they say they believe in Jesus, and they smile, and they're very cordial, and they seem to agree with your doctrine. And you talk, talk to them, and they say, oh, yeah, I believe that wait a minute, something's not right here. I'm pretty sure you don't believe that. 
And that, that happens all the time. They try to worm their way in, and when they do, they make people a twofold child of hell more than they already were. And they come in and they do this. In fact, one of the things that Ryan said in Taiwan was that the, he kept bringing up, he would bring up the Mormons. who were, He said, our concern, one of the concerns they had was, we don't want to appear to be like the Mormons, he says. They, we don't want people to think of us like Mormons because they're slick. At the end of verse 19, Nehemiah says, then Tobias sent letters to frighten me. Now, we don't have the contents of those letters, but we do have the intent. The intent was to frighten him. This has been the goal all along, to scare Nehemiah into quitting or fleeing as the governor. Look at verse 9, 6, 9. For all of them, all of the enemies were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work and it will not be done. Verse 13. This prophet that came in was hired for this reason, this false prophet, that I may become frightened and act accordingly and sin so that they might have an evil report in order that they might reproach me. And so they're still trying to frighten him. They're this thorn in his side that won't go away. So how does Nehemiah deal with it? First of all, he recognizes the situation. He recognizes what's going on. He sees it. He sees it throughout the chapter. He perceives what's happening here. Verse 13, it says here that you know, he perceives what's happening. And he, and he notices what's happening. Verse 12, rather. He perceives that God surely not sent this false prophet. And he begins to understand, okay, this is the enemy doing this work. He's not blind to Satan's attacks. He fully understands. That's the problem we have. We don't always understand these things when they're happening, that when, when, when things like that, evil things are happening, that Satan is behind these things. He's in opposition to God's people. We don't want to be ignorant of those things. Nehemiah's not ignorant. Secondly, he brings it to the Lord's attention. He does it throughout chapters 4 to 6. He's always turning to God in prayer. For example, look at chapter 6, verse 14. He says, Remember, O my God, Tobiah, and Sanballat, according to these works of theirs, and also Noadiah, the prophetess, the rest of the prophets, they're trying to frighten me. And he brings it to God's attention. He prays. When Nehemiah is in trouble by the enemies, he turns to God for help. He doesn't give up. So the wall is finished, but the enemy is not. He doesn't stop. He keeps at it. He's trying to frighten. And the enemy of our souls will never give up on us. If you think he will, you're sadly mistaken. He's coming after you today and tomorrow and the next day to demoralize you, to frighten you, to, uh, to uh, discourage you. And, and Satan is relentless. He won't give up. They never give up in their opposition. So whatever you do, don't let your guard down. This is the, the thorn in his side. Thirdly, notice the criteria for Nehemiah's appointments. The criteria for Nehemiah's appointments, look at chapter 7, verse 1. Now, when the wall was rebuilt, and then you look at chapter 7, you see a bunch of names, and you say, oh, well, there's nothing here. <laughs> it says, when the wall was rebuilt... I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, and the singers, and the Levites were appointed. Then I put Hanani, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. Then I said to them, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot, and while they are standing guard, let them shut and bolt the doors. Also appoint guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem, each at its post, and each in front of his own house. These verses are connected with chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. The wall is built. Now we have to appoint proper leadership to, to man the wall, to watch over the city. So Nehemiah puts the proper people in place, the worship leaders, first of all, 
Verse 1, the gatekeepers, they're, they're associated with the Levites, the singers, the Levites. But he needs people to be over the leadership of the city and, and over the wall to supervise this operation. They're going to need many guards, gatekeepers. They're going to need supervision. They're going to need direction. Nehemiah can't do it all himself. He can't do it all himself. He's got to have help. So he delegates, uh, he delegates authority to others to help him manage the city. He put two, puts two guys in charge of Jerusalem. The first is Hanani, whom he says is my brother. Now, that, that guy was mentioned in chapter 1, same guy. And he called him his brother there too. Now, it could be that he's, the, by the way, he's the guy that told Nehemiah about the deplorable situation in Jerusalem. He could be his actual brother or he could be just a countryman, whatever the word means. At any rate, Nehemiah could count on this guy. And then he gets a second guy, Hananiah, who's called the commander of the fortress here. But in this verse, this is a very important verse. I've thought about this verse many times through the years. This verse is, is important, really important to Nehemiah as to the appointment of leadership and who he's looking for to be a leader. Nehemiah wanted men who were faithful and God-fearing. That's who he wanted for leadership. Now, these guys, Hananiah, for example, Hananiah, they're not priests. They're not leading the charge spiritually. They're not Levites. They hold secular positions. One is the commander of a fortress. The other is maybe an administrator of some kind. But the one thing that is highlighted here is their spiritual qualities. This is a great lesson for us. This is very important in my opinion. Who should we hand responsibility over to people to lead, in our case, in the church? Who should we give responsibility to people in this church in positions of responsibility? Who should we give that to? Do, should we give it to people who have proven themselves to be faithful already or people who are unreliable? You know, the kind of people you can't, you don't know if they're going to show up on time. You don't know if they're going to do their job. You don't know what, what's going to happen with them. You don't know what's going to, you, you have no idea. Is that who we should hand over to the job, the jobs in this church, positions of responsibility? No. You choose people who are faithful, what, already. People who are faithful already. Remember the New Testament principle, he who is faithful in a little is what? Faithful in much. Faithful a little, you're faithful. If you're not faithful a little, how is it you think you're going to be faithful in much? To appoint people of position, of positions of responsibility in the church who are not faithful in hopes that they will become faithful, that's not the, that doesn't work. It doesn't work. That's not the pattern. It's not the biblical pattern. Here's the biblical pattern. First, find people who are faithful in that which is least. Second, delegate to them the responsibility in the church. That's how it works. 1 Timothy 1.12, Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who strengthened me because he considered me faithful. Interestingly enough, it says that. Putting me in the service, that is God's standard. God doesn't care for the wishy-washy. He's looking for faithful people. Okay, But he's also looking for people who fear him. Look at verse uh, 2. Hananiah feared God more than many, it says. It doesn't say he feared God more than any. He feared God more than many. He's not a perfect guy, but he's a guy who fears God more than the average person. He's more concerned with what God thinks about him than people think about him. And, so, and he's as, as a military commander, he's reverencing the Lord. That's what he does in a secular position. Now, in the 21st century church, these are typically not the standards people go by. They're not looking for, they're not concerned about, oh, by the way, we better find a guy who's faithful and a guy who fears God. They're not looking for that. They're looking for a person who is charismatic, right? He's got charisma. I don't see that in the Bible anywhere. Besides that, the people you choose to be in positions of responsibility, 
they're automatically examples. What kind of examples are they? So what do you want in the way of an example? Nobody here is perfect. None of us are perfect. We're all ready to admit that at the drop of a hat. But you want examples of the flock. So there is a criteria that the Bible has for putting people in the positions of responsibility. People must be faithful. They must fear God. And you see it all through the Old Testament. You see it in the New Testament. God wants people who, Nehemiah wanted people in leadership that honored God. And that's what he got. And then fourthly and finally, notice the inclination of Nehemiah's heart. The inclination of Nehemiah's heart, verses 4 and 5. Now the city, Jerusalem, was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not built. They're building a wall around Jerusalem, and it's not populated very much yet. People are living in the outlying villages. Verse 5, then God, then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the people to be enrolled by genealogies. Then I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up first, in which I found the following record, and then you have a bunch of names through the rest of the chapter. And then you go home and you say, well, there's nothing here. Uh, isn't it interesting that God's endorsing genealogies, first of all? But I'll move on from that subject. This is the second time that Nehemiah has said something like this. He says in verse 5, then God put it into my heart to do a certain thing. Go to chapter 2, verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12. Nehemiah sets out to inspect a broken wall, broken down wall of Jerusalem. In verse 12, he's, he's doing this, and he says, As I, And I rose in the night, I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind or my heart. Same word, uh, actually, in uh, Nehemiah chapter 6. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. Both times, he says the Lord is directing him. In fact, the literal meaning is God gave it to my heart. God gave it to my heart to do a certain thing. Both times he says this. Now, this first of all lets us know that Nehemiah's life, we're talking about the principles that he operated under, is not governed by his own impulses. Nehemiah's life is not governed by his own, own impulses, what he wants to do, what he thinks he should do, or the opinion of other people, but by the Lord himself. The Lord is sovereign over his heart every step of the way. The proverb says the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. But in Nehemiah's case, it was always this. His plans were lining up with God's plans, never the other way. He's always doing this. I thought of the hymn, Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah, which, Stephen, we need to sing sometime. If he had known that hymn, Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah, he would have sung it to himself. He would have sung it to God. Because he lived under divine guidance. He lived under it, and he, and he it was able to discern the guidance that God provided. That would also be a good prayer for us. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. Secondly, this tells us that Nehemiah had a close walk with God. Close walk. His heart was in tune with the Lord's. He desired what the Lord desired. He was sensitive to the guidance of God. That's a strong relationship. You can see it be, between him and God. His own testimony. Uh, look at chapter 7, verse 5. Then my God put it into my heart, and he says this more than once. It's his God. He, knew, he knows God in a real personal way. He, as you can tell by reading his life, you read his whole life, you can see he knows God in a real personal way. He's able to discern God working providential in his life. He can see it clearly. And this discernment lined up with the scriptures. This guy isn't just having a vision somewhere that doesn't make any sense. His leadership from God lines up with the scriptures that predict that this wall is going to be rebuilt. 
not having a vision that's contrary to what the scriptures say. What God put into his heart was to enroll the people by genealogies. That's what he's getting at. It was based on this, this genealogy in Nehemiah 7 is basically the same genealogy in Ezra chapter 2. You'll see the same similar names, same names. And what he's trying to do here is this list reminds us of, of the Jews of their connection <coughs> to the first returnees that came. You guys are connected here, and you have an ongoing goal of doing what the Lord wants, first of all. And then it has to do with populating the city of Jerusalem. Who's going to live in Jerusalem? People aren't willing to live in Jerusalem. And we're going to see this later on in chapter 11. We won't follow that line of thought right now. We'll see it later on in chapter 11. But for right now, I want to emphasize this. Nehemiah is inclined, <clears throat> his heart is inclined to follow the Lord. That's what he wants to do. Didn't we see it from chapter 1 on? In chapter 1, when Nehemiah hears the words that Jerusalem is broken down, the walls are broken down, he's heartbroken about it. And he fasts and he weeps and he prays. And in chapter 2, his countenance before the king has fallen because he's sad because the city is in such a deplorable condition. But then the king approves of his journey to go to Jerusalem, and his, from then on his heart is fixed. I've got to build this wall. So you can see he's inclined to follow the Lord. Now the problem with our hearts is, is that we're prone, our hearts are prone to wonder, right? The, the, the hymn, they're prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to lead of the God I love. That's what we're prone to do, stray from God. Every day seems to be a battle between our souls following God and our souls not following God. That's why Proverbs 4.23 warns us to watch over our hearts with all diligence. Always. We must always be cultivating a heart that follows God. The psalmist prayed. I love the psalmist prayer in Psalm 119. <clears throat> this is a great prayer for us to pray every day. He said, incline my heart to your testimonies. Now this man who wrote Psalm 119, whoever he was, David, Daniel, I've heard all kinds of, whoever he was, godly man. This man was dedicated to God, seriously uh, committed to God and God's word, and yet he prays this, incline my heart to your testimonies. Now, why would he pray that? It's because he felt in himself, he felt in his heart, I can go astray. I can go astray from God's word. <clears throat> and he knew his heart was prone to wonder. He wanted it inclined to God's word. And so we see that Nehemiah's heart is, inclined to do that, to follow God, to follow his word. Well, these are some key spiritual principles. As we, Before we get into chapter 8 next week about the word of God being opened up, I wanted, us to, I wanted to see some of these things along the way. These are key spiritual principles Nehemiah employed in his own life and following God because, uh, because this is how he operated. He was successful because God was with him. God helped him. Far from that, he wasn't successful. He would not have been. He drew spiritual enemies to himself because he stood for the Lord. And he did something for God, and, and people didn't like that. He appointed people to positions of responsibility who were faithful and God-fearing. He didn't settle for less than high standards like that. And he was able to discern and heed the Lord's providential leading in his life because he walked closely with God, and he saw it. These are the same spiritual principles we should operate under. Nothing's changed in all these years. Nothing's changed in all these centuries in the way God works. We do this that God might be glorified, that his work might continue. Nehemiah was not a perfect man. Yes, the disclaimer, not a perfect man. But Nehemiah followed God. We could say we should follow Nehemiah as he followed the Lord, like Paul said, right? We can learn from his example. He, God used him in the past. We can learn from his example in the present. He's just a man, but as we study his life, we see that it's all about trusting the Lord, all about depending upon God, all about following God, 
It's always this way. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Let's pray tonight. The Lord will help us going forward with these things. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful again for your word, for what we can learn from it. Help us to uh, be people who are guided by principles, Lord, of your, that would uh, honor you, uh, that would uh, keep us in touch with you, help us to walk closely with you, Lord, loving you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, inclining our hearts to you, Lord, incline our hearts to your testimonies and to yourself. And we pray we'll be committed to you in all that we do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.